uh, nothing hits as hard as a coup on your own government. Oh, my God. And it was wild because so we were on our way to West Virginia when everything was breaking to go to the family cabin. Um, and like Casey's sitting there and he goes, oh, my God. And he goes, crazy shit's happening. And then our friends Dave and Liz were supposed to come up and meet us up there. And then Dave was like, well, I'm in the National Guard, so I'm getting called to D.C. So we won't be there. But then, you know, it's like then he was called back because they're like, oh, they're gone now. And it's like, yeah, they're gone because you didn't fucking arrest them. Like, <laughs> what? It yeah. was just, like, so wild. And now, like, you know, my friend Paige, like, she had all these jobs in, like, D.C., Virginia area and, like, interior design job. And she's like, I'm not going going down there. Like, Not this week. Not this week. Not anywhere near the inauguration or whatever. It's just, it's really bananas. It is crazy. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing on TV, but also I could 100% believe what I was seeing on I love, TV. <laughs> I love the thing. It was uh, Maeve Higgins, who um, is a often uh, guest on a, what is it? Wait, wait, don't tell me. And she's from Ireland. And she was like, yeah, everybody seems really surprised that this is happening in America. And to be honest with you, it's the only place I've ever seen it happen. <laughs> it's not that uncommon here. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. It was so <laughs> yeah i mean after you watch dairy girls you know that like ireland oh is like the gosh. national guard of ireland is yes. like hot and heavy constantly <laughs> so if you, did you start watching dairy girls yeah do you love it yeah it's really cute i love it a lot, I love it a lot. Oh, it's such a great show <laughs> but we're not here to talk about the coup on the capitol no. although we can talk about that forever <laughs> we're here to talk about history on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance mm -hmm. but there's a couple things to note number one we're drinking the entire time <laughs> and we are certainly not historians yes. and those two things are very fun together mm -hmm. especially since this is the longest period of time that i have not drank in three <gasps> years really yeah how long has it been a week oh my god <laughs> so producer and i are doing dry january but mm -hmm. like i'm obviously drinking for the show exclusively right but we recorded over a week ago that's um, right. So crazy, crazy times. <laughs> but we do have two new patrons, what? Elena and Brooke. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. We've been getting great, great emails. Another one from Artemis and from Vero, our good old ah, friend, Ronnie. Friend. <laughs> Ronnie. <laughs> and um, Juniper, who also left us a really, really sweet review yes. and some emails. And then we got some Instagram messages from Maureen Erica, who said that we mentioned her sister. So I'm going to mention you as yes. well. <laughs> and then just today, somebody uh, was commenting on somebody else's Instagram, um, Tristan Beha, B-E-H-A, and said they exclusively listen to women's history podcasts, but this one is their favorite. No way. <laughs> I love I, that. I said, you're right. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, well, thank you so much. We've just been feeling so loved recently and it's been really great because, you know, we work really hard on this and it is so great to hear from you all. So yeah, that's, it's all just very heartwarming and lovely. And what a great way to start off the year. It is because we started recording. We didn't release, but we, no, yeah, we did. We released in 2018. Yeah. It's 2021. <laughs> What? We're 
we're old people. Oh my gosh. Here we are. Where has the time gone? <laughs> and that's, we can't, time flies when you're busy. Yeah, it, yes, and, it really does. And you guys are all busy too. You are so busy. You are starting a new craft. You're making homemade gummy bears. And it was legitimately your New Year's resolution to figure yes. out how to make gummies, but not just gummies, but vegan gummies. Oh my gosh. And there's so many ingredients. Your hands are so sticky and you don't want to get sticky gummy Xanthax gum, whatever it is on your nice phone. So And your new manicure. And your that new you manicure. Yes. Because you can't go out. You can't go out. You can't go buy gummies. Um, so, <laughs> so we are going to describe what these women look like. So while we're telling their story, you have a nice visual picture in your head. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing? What does she look like? I am doing the wonderfully amazing Bessie Coleman. She is a black and Native American woman. In her most popular picture, though, she has like this really serious face and a flight hat and Mm. goggles. But that's not really like how she looks. It's got like the strap under the Mm -hmm. chin and it makes her face look serious and round. But really, she's got a fairly thin face and a cute, cute smile with sparkly eyes and really great eyebrows, especially for the early 1900s. <laughs> and she's typically wearing like this long khaki jacket that's belted at the waist along with matching khaki pants and boots. And she had this made for her, like this flight outfit. Oh, that's so cool. And she was 5'3 and cute as a freaking button. <laughs> I cannot get over looking at pictures of her. She's so cute. <laughs> Who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay, so I am doing the fictional character Katniss Everdeen. Uh, She is described in the books as having straight black hair, olive skin, and gray eyes. Um, But when portrayed by Jennifer Lawrence in the movie franchise, she has kind of like slightly wavy hair. And it's more of like a dark brown rather than a black. Um, But no matter who is portraying her or describing her, her signature hair thing is that it is often in a long braid going down her back. She is described as not being very tall, but she's very thin because she often goes hungry in District 12. Um, But she is very strong. Um, She is most often seen in kind of like a battle gear suit with a bow and arrow and a gold Mockingjay pin on. And that's what Katniss Everdeen looks like. The braid is the most important the part. The braid is the most important part. And I will say, they say it's down her back, but in the movies, it's, it's like slung over, over her, her shoulder, shoulder. Um, which is super cute. It but. is. <laughs> it is super cute. It's very like Tomb Raider, yes. like hair up. Very Lara Croft. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we have to do her. Huh. I don't really know anything about Lara Croft, except she's like a really cool Halloween costume. Yeah. I used to play like the video game, like with really? the chorus. Yeah. Oh, that's but I awesome. think I, I think the game may have come out about the time that Angelina Jolie was playing her. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought the Tomb Raider game was what the movie was based off of. It was, but this is another game like that they started to make her look a little bit more like Angelina Jolie oh, over time, I think. I see. I, I see. Know. But Angelina Jolie does look like her. But anyway, yes. do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It's so beautiful. I love the colors. It is called Queen Bessie the Brave. <laughs> And it is a one ounce of gin, a half an ounce of acai liqueur that you graced me with for Christmas, <laughs> a half an ounce of coconut simple syrup, a half an ounce of lemon, and then you sugar the rim with, it's like a sugar sage mix, mm. and then you put in as garnish a quarter of a lemon and actual sage leaves. I love it. Well, Cheers. Cheers. 
Mm. It's got like an interesting spice to it, right? Yeah. And it's like fruity, but like aromatic and herby. Like I love the sage and the acai. Like they just go so well together. And then of course, like citrus is so good in anything. So, oh my gosh, I love this. Yeah. I can't even taste the coconut. Mm-hmm. I want to taste more of it. I thought the coconut simple syrup might be a little bit stronger, but there's so many powerful flavors in this. Yeah. I think the coconut is a nice like backing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like I kind of like that you get more sage than coconut, but you can still like sense it, but it's not like overwhelming, you know, mm-hmm. like normally I feel like if you put co- like coconut in a cocktail, it like that's all you taste. Mm-hmm. So I love that it's like more understated in this. So brava. It's yeah. Delicious. I had to uh, <laughs> redeem myself. after. Yeah. <laughs> so bad yeah that one was not a winner but it's okay yeah 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 no more melon liqueur i mean what number episode is this like a hundred and this is gonna be this is 110 110 so we've made 220 cocktails (laughs) yeah not including the interview episodes yeah we're gonna have a couple not as good ones, yeah, but this one are. is fantastic. Ah, yes, I win. Um, okay, <laughs> which actually I <laughs> I included the sage solely because. Um, so my ex best friend messaged me this week privately to say that she was sorry that my grandmother passed and her dog's name was Sage. So it like oh my god in my head I was okay. like Sage. That's what I'm using this week. There we go. Yeah. So good for her for okay. getting off her high horse. <laughs> Okay. Woo. All right. What do you know about Bessie Coleman? <laughs> I know that she was a pilot, and that's like all I know. That I, that's the only fucking thing I know about her. But like, yeah. So I know that's all she, I knew when I started. I Don't feel bad. She, okay. Good. <laughs> I feel like that's what most people know uh-huh. because. It's like one of those things where, you know, like Women's History Month comes around and then you see just like you're just bombarded with pictures of awesome women. And that's always one that I see. I'm like, I want to know more about her. So I'm super excited to learn. I am, too. So let's get going. Okay. Elizabeth Coleman, known as Bessie, was born on January 26th. So happy birthday, girl. Hmm. 1892. So in the 1800s in Atlanta, Texas. So mm. late 1800s in the South. Wow. Atlanta, Texas. That's confusing. Yes, it is. I know this because I almost wrote Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> she was the 10th of 13 children, of which only nine survived, which was oh. common at the time. Yeah. So she was really the sixth of nine children. Her father was George Coleman, who was three-fourths Cherokee, and the other fourth african-american and then her mother was susan coleman who was entirely african-american she was born in a small cabin on like a dirt floor oh my god this is not like a prosperous family Mm -hmm. and the oldest three siblings of the household had already gone out into the world they were gone when bessie was two her family moved to a new county in texas and they lived as sharecroppers which sharecropping is a lot like the feudal system in europe where you live on the farmland and then you get to take a portion of it for yourself right um but they're picking cotton in the first few years post slavery in america so this is not a desirable thing to do and her mom was either a slave or 
was born when her parents were slaves. Okay. So I couldn't quite splice Either way, that it's out. like in her family history. Exactly. Okay. Um, they had a fourth of an acre lot with a three-room shotgun house, which is like when they do room, 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 and you could shoot a shotgun straight through. Yep. Uh, which is still common in the South. Mm-hmm. And three more sisters were born after her, and it was her job to watch the kids and tend the garden. Interesting. Bessie's childhood. <laughs> That's a rough, that's a rough go of it. Like yeah. just being a kid and then being just like in charge of everybody. Like that's it's hard that's because difficult. she was also young. Very right. Young. And it's also like I feel like there's a little bit of resentment of like, well, they got to go off and like do shit. And like, yeah. Why am I here? Right. Why am I here? Yeah. So then Bessie finally was allowed to go to school. And this is yeah. I mean, this is all while she's watching her younger siblings. So she has to walk four miles to the segregated school both ways so eight miles a day oh my god but she was so talented at school she loved Mm. to read she was an excellent student in math um and I mean walking four miles is insane because they require like three forms of photo ID for you to pick a kid up from school these days right (laughs) well and I'm sure she had terrible shoes too so it's like if she had any if she had any yeah so it's like Again, not only is she walking so far, but like it's probably painful. <laughs> it's very painful. And then she's getting there. And for what? This segregated one room schoolhouse couldn't afford textbooks or paper or even pencils. So it's like what what's even happening right. here? But each year, Bessie's routine of school and chores and church was interrupted by, of course, the cotton harvest. Mm. So four months from September to December, she lived in the largest cotton producing county in America and she hated it. But because she was so good at math, her family made it her job to keep an eye on the person weighing the cotton (gasps) that was picked. Oh my God. And when they weren't looking, she would sometimes put her toe on the scale to make it a little bit heavier. <laughs> but like I said earlier, she was so stinking cute. She could get away oh my with anything. <laughs> in 1901, racial relations in the U.S., especially in the South, were really, really bad. So her dad, George Coleman, decides he's going to leave the family and return to the Native American territory in Oklahoma for better opportunities opportunities and he's like come on wife and kids let's go to this reservation and um his wife's like no because we're still black like it doesn't matter where we go you're Cherokee we aren't Cherokee right so they stay and he goes and now we have a single mom with four girls under 10 oh my god yeah because her two other teenage brothers had left at this point as well And there's no opportunities for single black women to get jobs. But Mr. and Mrs. Jones offer Susan Coleman a job as their housekeeper. And it doesn't stop there. Mr. and Mrs. Jones of Texas will say, hey, make bread today. And don't forget, make an extra one to take home. They'll say, these clothes don't fit our daughters anymore. Take them home for your kids. Mm. And they're like, nice clothes. So let's all try to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. They're, they're some really great people. Yeah. And they're paying her, right? Like oh, the, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, She's okay, their good. housekeeper. I mean, I'm sure they're not paying her a lot. A lot? Yeah. Um, but they're doing like niceties that most people did not do for black people back yeah. then. So like good for the Joneses. 
Um, so mom's at work and Bessie's going to school and in charge of the home and in charge of her three younger siblings. And she's nine. And it's insane. God, she's an American girl doll. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's Addie. But her mom is trying so, so hard. Her mom can't even read. But anytime the traveling library comes by on the wagon, she makes sure she can get them some books. And she continues to whatever etiquette she sees at the Joneses' house, she makes sure that her girls do that at home. So oh, even shit. if it's raggedy, it'll be like, this is the tablecloth we're eating off of. Right. Like... I know we don't have much, but like elbows off the table, sit up straight. Right. Like, oh my gosh, that's so smart. Mama Susan is being like, you're going to make it in this world and I'm going to make sure you do. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of like a hope in a better society, Mm -hmm. you know, that I think some people kind of lose in that situation. They're like, it's not going to get fucking better. So why try? And she's like, no, like. Maybe the future will be better and then you will need to know X, Y, Z in order to exist in it. Yeah. Like it's a very forward thinking mom. It is. Yeah. So good job, Susie. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, after eighth grade, there's no more segregated school. So she has to stop going to school at eighth grade. And in fact, most of the teachers in segregated schools only had a sixth grade education. So it's Mm. not like they could go farther anyway. Yeah. But Bessie was determined to go to college. So for the next five years after eighth grade, she is a laundress to save money. She's walking 10 miles a day, picking up people's laundry off their porches, taking it to wherever, doing the laundry, and then returning it to their porch. And at 18, she took her five years worth of life savings and enrolled in Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal University. Wow. She, of course, did not meet the entrance requirements, but they put her in, like, the remedial classes to prep you for college. Mm -hmm. She completed one term, and her funds ran out. Oh, my God. Can you imagine working for five years for one semester? No. That's terrible. Five years. For one semester. Oh, my God. But she's like, it's fine. So she goes home and does another five years of laundry. Oh, my God. But at 23 years old, her older brothers are like, well, she's 23. Let's give her a shot. Hey, we live in Chicago, girl. Come up and hang out at our apartment. And Bessie's like, hell yeah. (laughs) She goes up to Chicago and she trains to be a manicurist. And she could have been a manicurist at a female salon. But no, she decides to be a manicurist at a barber shop. They had those? Yeah, you like would polish their nails so that like, you know, businessmen can shake hands and their hands look good. Do you remember in like the early 2000s where people were like super pissed that men started to get manicures? <laughs> yeah, go back to what the 1901s. <laughs> I, I felt like it was such a crisis of masculinity. They're like, what's happening to men? It's like, it's like just clean your nails. Just, it's just clean. clean. What the hell? It's just men wanting to look nice. It's okay. Oh, that was the term metrosexual. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like if they would get like a unibrow like plucked, they'd yeah. be like, how dare you pluck one brow? <laughs> one, one eye from that brow. Masculinity will break off the brow of one man. 
Yeah. It's ridiculous. It was, but they were getting manicures back then. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. Soaking nails, polishing. Your hands have to be soft. You have to do business. But she picked a barbershop because she knew, A, the barbershops are on Main Street. She knew that they were getting manicures in the windows. So she would be out front. She would be around the wealthiest black men in Chicago. And she was real fucking cute. So (laughs) she knew the tips would be good, Mm -hmm. to say the least. Um, And she became the best manicurist, or at least the most popular, even though she didn't aspire to do that for a living. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she meets this guy who's 14 years older than her named Clyde Glenn and secretly marries him, but they never live together. And that's the entire story with Clyde. So they never live together. But now that she's married, she can move out of her brother's apartment. So she has her own apartment and he's doing his own thing, but they're married I would love it if, like, he was secretly, like, gay, gay. and she was uh-huh. like, hey, you need a, a wife on paper, and I need a husband on paper just to do fucking anything, yeah. so, like, let's make a deal. I absolutely feel like that Let's is... Wayne Brady make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they're just living in Chicago, but separately, their own lives, and just making this marriage work. There you go. Side paper. Love so. it. Peace to Clyde. That's all. <laughs> so while at work, she would hear rich men talk. And at this time, it's like World War One, So they're talking about pilots. And she decides that she wants to be a pilot. And she tells them all that. And they kind of pick on her. You know what I mean? Yeah. They like little tease her because she's the girl. But she keeps a little toy plane at her station <gasps> at work. And um, both of her brothers made it back alive from World War One, And it's telling that she was more worried about the white soldiers killing right yeah the white american soldiers than the actual other forces and we've talked about that before right it's like even more of a feat if a black soldier comes back alive (laughs) because your own people are against you yeah so her brother at this point he's back he thinks he is the shit because he's working as a cook for al capone (laughs) 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 who knew this was coming i couldn't have picked that in a million years (laughs) al capone yeah, but I mean, among all the bad things Al Capone did, he was not super racist. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> there you go. Uh, terrible, not racist, though. But Lots her- of equality in this fancy jail cell. <laughs> uh, yeah, poor Al Capone. <laughs> Goes in for tax evasion. Uh, but her brother, with all his swagger, is a Bessie. In France, the black people can fly planes. In France, the women can fly planes. Blah, 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 blah. Josephine Baker's like, yes, bitch, come on yes, over. <laughs> and uh, she's like, you know what? Fine. I'm going to actually do it then, you dumbass. The way you would talk to your older brother. Yes. And needless to say, uh, American flight schools didn't want her because she was a woman and she was black. So Harriet Quimby was the first woman in America to get a pilot's license. And Amelia Earhart is actually learning to fly the exact same time as Bessie. Oh, cool. But Amelia Earhart didn't have a license right away because you were allowed to fly without a license. You just needed somebody to teach you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she even looked for a black flying instructor and they wouldn't do it because she was a woman. <sighs> so she's it, she's fighting against many battles. Um So she's a dream, a big dreamer. So she makes a decision. Um, She's going to go and ask somebody for help. 
But I want to pause and talk a little bit about America at this time. So the Chicago race riots are happening, which are some of the worst in this country's history. Plessy versus Ferguson had just been passed, which legalized segregation, but really legalized racism. 1919 was called the year of the red summer because more than a hundred lynchings happened that summer in the United States. And also it's the year that the movie birth of a nation came out, which is the most racist film in U S history and Mm -hmm. is based on the book, the Klansman. Mm -hmm. Um, So in one of the things I was watching about her, it said that this was just a soul crushing time in America for black people. So, she decides she's going to ask for help because she can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. So she goes to the publisher of the Chicago Weekly, which is The Defender. And his name is Robert Abbott. And she knows him from the barbershop. And he published this historically black newspaper that exposed lynchings and treatments of black people in the South. And it's like a real serious paper. So she goes to him and says, hey. Here's why it's important for a black woman to be a pilot. And he's impressed. So he gives her advice. Not easy advice. He says, get another job, learn French, and then apply over there. Fuck. And uh, she takes another job at a chili parlor on top of being a manicurist. And she's saving money to become a pilot. What is a chili parlor? So they're literally serving chili. And so chili became really popular in the United States because it's like a full meal. And it actually was from San Antonio, but originally served at the Chicago World's Fair, of course. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um, But during like the poor era in the United States from World War I to World War II and the Great Depression, it like saved people from starving to death. Oh, my gosh. Because it like has meat and beans and vegetables. And you know what I mean? It's just like a full meal and it's relatively cheap. I cannot believe that you know that much about the history of chili. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting like, this is what it is. Not like, here's how chili saved America. Um, (laughs) Do I watch a lot of Maybe I like food. I don't know. I mean, I personally love chili. So (laughs) I that was so satisfying. I hate everything about myself. I love it. Wow. Yeah. Chili's chili's important. Honestly, I wish chili bars still existed. What? I know. Like throw out the ice cream bar. Give me a chili bar. That's That's what what I want. It is what we need. Forget ice cream. Forget the air bars. Give America chili again. Uh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) now one more question about chili are you a saltines girl or a tortilla girl i'm a saltines girl me too okay i like a saltine and a chili a saltine and chili yeah saltine chili (laughs) cheese sour cream that's my go-to okay okay perfect for sure i'm sour cream on the side but (laughs) same deal same deal (laughs) wait on the side yeah i put it on the side and then i like dip my fork in (laughs) The sour cream. That's intense. It is weird. What a process. (laughs) It's how I like to eat. Um, All right, listeners, tell us how you eat chili. (laughs) (laughs) So the Robert Abbott obviously is publishing this newspaper, but he's also like, you know what? It won't only be good for her, but it'll be good for me if I start publishing about her side quest to get Mm. to France. So they are publishing about it and they're giving her financial support. And then this other banker named Jesse Binga also gives her support. So side feminism, (laughs) they're all helping out. I love it. So Bessie 
starts taking one year of French lessons from the Berlitz Language School in Chicago because they're giving her money to do this. And then she applies for her passport, changed her age from 28 to 24, and swore <laughs> that she had never been married. <laughs> <laughs> So she gets on a boat and travels to Paris on November 20th, 1920. She gets into the second flight school she applies to. And it's only because the first one was full. It's not like they turned her down. (laughs) And she, again, girls getting in her steps, had to walk nine miles to get to this school. Get a bike. Oh, my (laughs) God. Will someone give this girl a bike? Yeah, she had enough people trying to help out. She's a scooter at least. (laughs) A hoverboard. <laughs> so, Marty McFly, a cut her some slack. <laughs> she learned to fly in a biplane with steering that used these like vertical sticks that were about the width of like a baseball bat, and then these like rubber bar, rudder bar things under her feet that mm-hmm. like she would push up and down on. And on June fifteenth, nineteen twenty-one, Bessie became the first Black woman and first Native American to earn an aviation pilot's license and the first black person and first Native American to earn an international aviation Ah, license. That's so cool. So first thing she does after all of this, all of this work, the five years of laundry, the going to school, the begging, the chili, the manicures. (laughs) Chili. (laughs) Go to Paris and buy herself a badass leather jacket. Yes! (laughs) Just like you, but in Italy. Yeah, mine was in Florence. (laughs) Duh. Um, But she didn't sleep in it like Amelia. She wanted it to look fresh. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So... She wants to make sure to polish her skills before she goes home. So she spends another two months taking lessons from this like French ace pilot. Mm. And they train like with two cockpits. There's you're in the front, your instructor's behind you, and there's just a steering wheel, no rudder, no brakes. You just like glide into the ground and this metal thing drags to slow you down. (laughs) Planes are babies right now. Baby, baby plane. (laughs) If we had a title for our episodes, it would be (laughs) baby planes. (laughs) Listen, they're cute as a button. So September 1921, she sails for America and becomes a media sensation. She's beautiful. She's charming. She's well-spoken. In New York, she's taken to Shuffle Along, which is the first all-black musical on Broadway. Oh, my gosh. That's what Josephine Baker was in. I know. (laughs) And um, commercial flying. I think she might have learned something from Josephine Baker, and you'll see in a minute. So Did she get a cheetah? Not quite. <laughs> she did get a plane. She's like, look who's in the cockpit, a cheetah. <laughs> so she's walking on the wings. <laughs> Commercial flying was still a decade or so in the fu- future. So Bessie's like, okay, I know how to make money. I have to be a stunt flyer. But I can't just like do it because I'm not the best. And if I'm not a white man, I have to be literally the best. Yeah. Um. So at this point, Stunt flying is called barnstorming, and it was like flying circuses. There was like a pilot or a small team, and they would perform for crowds, and you would pretty much go out to a field, and you would just do all these tricks. But she knew she wasn't the best, so she's like, you know what? I'm just going to do a a quick uh, reverse, reverse, and go back to Europe Mm -hmm. and take another couple months in Netherlands to make sure I'm really good at stunt flying first. Okay. So she's like back and forth again. So, um, Bessie goes to the Netherlands. She gets taught. She ends up in Germany. She's going to exhibitions. She's learning from the best people. And when she comes back, her first air show is in New York City on September 19th, 22. 
no, September 1922. At an event that's honoring the veterans of the all-black 369th Infantry Regiment from World War I. Her friend, or the publisher of the um, Chicago newspaper, mm-hmm. bills her in the newspaper as the world's greatest female flyer in this show she flew and had like stunt parachutists jump out of her plane Mm. and she's flying around the country trying to inspire people but then she would like land after her shows and offer rides for five dollars for just random people which was like 75 dollars today's money oh my god because she has to make money yeah so the reason this is called barnstorming is really you would fly really low over a town Uh and get everybody's attention and then you would land in an open field and then no go and negotiate with the farmer to be like i'm gonna do tricks here i'll give you some of the profit <gasps> and that's what these pilots did all across the country that's so <laughs> wild it is i can't believe that that used to happen <laughs> it's probably bringing so many like air traffic control laws <laughs> it is but she didn't care what if you hit a cow there weren't air traffic control laws back then. <laughs> It just, she didn't care because she loved doing it. Mm -hmm. And she said that the air is the only place free of prejudice. So she wanted to be up there. She wanted to fly. She wanted to do figure eights and loop-de-loops and like all this crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And man, oh man, did she put on a show. She would walk out to the plane and get on her knee and Tim Tebow pray (laughs) to God. And the Star Spangled Banner would be playing. She knew her... (laughs) audience <laughs> and the newspapers started calling her queen bessie or brave bess oh. and that's why the cocktails call queen bessie the brave i love that um six weeks after her show in new york she goes to chicago and delivers like a great daredevil stunt demonstration to all these crowds for the next five years in the u.s she is a sensation she was invited to important events and she would be interviewed by newspapers and became admired by black and white Americans alike. She's flying a Curtis JN4, which was a Jenny biplane. And the stunt flying thrill and the cheering and the fans were only part of Bessie's dream. Her goal was to teach other African Americans to learn to fly. Mm. And to combat racism, she spoke to audiences across the country about the pursuit of aviation and her goals for black people. She also, like Josephine Baker, refused to participate in aviation events that prohibited the audience of African-Americans. I love that. And if they weren't even allowed to walk in the same entrance, she would not perform. That's incredible. And she would just leave. And everybody was there to see her, so there was nothing they could do about it. And it's like one of those things, like, if white performers would also do that, it would have made so many more changes early on because unfortunately like money like that speaks greater than like anything else, which is so annoying, (laughs) but like it's true. Like, and I I really believe her going to Josephine Baker's show and being probably allowed to be in the front row. Yeah. May have been a portion of what made her think I can make a difference. Yeah. Or like hearing about her in the news mm-hmm. and like just them existing at the same time. She to probably be heard about her in for France. each other. Yeah. She probably heard about her here. Absolutely. I mean, she was a global superstar. Right. Like that's amazing. So Bessie Coleman's like, I'm going to do the same thing. Mm. So she does really badly want to open this school because she knows that planes have accidents and she wants a black person to replace her in case something happens. That's brutal. It is. But she was a brutal girl, man. She was a daredevil. 
Bessie also would get criticized by the press sometimes for being too much of an opportunist or for flying too flamboyantly, which this could be because she's a woman or a black person. Who knows? Um, And then her reputation as a skilled and daring pilot was, I mean, everybody couldn't believe it. They were like, a woman is stalling out 10 miles from the ground and then gliding? No way. They were in love with it. So during the 20s, there are these two activists in Florida who invite Bessie to stay with them um, and they help her save money so that she can buy her own plane. Because at this point, like, oh, she doesn't have her own plane? Yet? No, she has to rent a plane every time she does a show. She has to give some of the money to the farm guy. You know what I mean? So yeah. she's she has to travel from place to place. She has to eat. She has to have clothes. So she's making practically nothing. She's oh breaking God. even. So this couple treats her like a daughter oh. and they're just great to her. But on February 22nd, 1923, Bessie's 30, but says she's 23. She's losing age as she goes. Um, Her plane engine stalls mid-flight, and she glides as best as she could to a possible stop. But it's a pretty bad crash to her brand-new own plane that she, like, just bought. And this resulted in a broken leg, three broken ribs, months and months in the hospital, and over a year until she could fly again. But... She, from the hospital bed, said, you tell the world I'm coming back. And her family's like, don't. Yeah, (laughs) please. Stay on the ground. Nobody wants you to do this for a while. (laughs) But because she had so many connections with the media, they were like, hey, how while you're down and out from flying, we're going to offer you this role in this feature-length film. And she's like, hell yeah, maybe I can make enough money to open my school. And the feature-length film is called Shadow and Sunshine. And she's like, of course. Um, But (laughs) she gets there and it is riddled with the first shooting day, like African-American stereotypes. And they want her to play like an Uncle Tom kind of like character. So she removed herself from the process completely. And this was a decision of principle because she offended some pretty high up people that could have helped her open a school. But she was like, I am not going to perpetuate the derogatory image that most white people already have in their head. Wow. So that's incredible. She backed away from that when she wasn't flying and all she wanted to do was fly. (laughs) But Bessie's getting more and more famous. So there starts to be people who are like, I don't know, maybe a flying school. That could be a thing. But she isn't just performing anymore. She's going on lecture circuits at every city she goes to. She's stopping and giving TED Talks at the black churches and the black halls and the restaurants and the barber shops and anywhere she can find. And she's saying, I did it. You can do it. And there's so many people who reference her as I saw her speak in public and she's the reason I did X, Y, Z with my life. I opened this pizza shop. I did blah, blah, blah. I took my trip to Maine that I never thought I'd take. You know what I mean? Yeah. So she changed a lot of lives. She even headlined the Juneteenth celebration in Texas. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. So she has this show on April 30th, 1926 in Jackson, Florida. 
dropped a page. <laughs> um, and she goes to Jackson. She does her lecture circuit. She's kissing babies and shaking hands. <laughs> and this wealthy business owner had helped her buy a new pilot or a new plane by this time. And she has her friend William go pick the plane up and fly it to Jacksonville so that she can use it um and people were just like I don't know Bessie like it's a new plane I don't know if you should do this I don't know if it's safe um but Will had flown it and you know like it has normal plane problems it's not a big deal <laughs> normal plane normal problem. plane problems <laughs> this is a Boeing 477 <laughs> so they decide the day before the show they are going to go up and do like a trial run because that's what you do before every single show. And on the next day, Bessie was going to parachute out of the plane. So they're looking for where she's going to jump out to like where she should land. Like yeah. what's a good place. Um, so they're up there. They're flying around and about 10 minutes into the flight. Unexpectedly, the plane goes into a dive at 3000 feet above <gasps> ground. Oh my God. Because Bessie had been looking for a place to parachute, she was not wearing a seatbelt. <gasps> planes don't have tops at this time. So at about 2,000 feet, Bessie was thrown from the plane <gasps> and died upon impact. Oh, my God. On the ground. William tried to regain control of the plane but crashed and it exploded and burst into flames. It was later found that a wrench that had been used to service the plane had slid into the <gasps> engine and damaged the controls. Oh, my God. That's Be- horrifying. Yeah. Bessie Coleman was 34 <gasps> years old. Oh, this is exactly why she wanted to open up the school and she yeah. didn't get a chance to. Oh, my God. Dangerous. Yeah. Her funeral, they had a real quick like service in Florida because that's where she was. And 5,000 people showed up. Then her body was sent to Chicago and 10,000 people showed up. And the ceremony was performed by Ida B. Wells. Wow. (laughs) That's so cool. I know. Uh, Her legacy inspired many African-Americans throughout the remainder of the 1900s. Her dream to open the school was later realized in 1929, a couple years after she died. Her friend opened the Bessie Coleman Aero Club. And he said that because of Bessie Coleman, we have overcome that which is worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. Mm. She inspired so many famous people. For example... Um, right now in the U.S., there are only 7% female pilots. 7? 7%. 7%? And all of them tie back to Bessie Coleman. A woman named Meryl Tengestel was the first and only black woman to fly the U-2 aircraft, which is like pretty much a plane that's like a spacecraft. It goes so high, you have to wear like a spacesuit to fly oh my it. God. Um, obviously, Mae Jameson is often compared to her, and mm-hmm. she said, it's tempting to draw parallels between me and Miss Coleman. But I point to Bessie Coleman and say, here is a woman, a being who exemplifies and serves as a model for all humanity the very definition of strength dignity courage integrity and beauty a replica of her plane is in an atlanta texas history museum a public library in Ch- library <laughs> library <laughs> in chicago is named after her a road at the airports in Tampa, Oakland, and O'Hare are named after her, as well as a road in Germany's Frankfurt International Airport. 
It is also customary for African-American pilots who fly over her grave to drop flowers. <gasps> and this was inspired by the Tuskegee Airmen who did it when they got back from World War II. Oh, my God. She was included into the National Women's Hall of Fame. There is a toy character of her in season five, episode 11 of Doc McStuffins. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she's just an, exa- an example of determination and strength to girls and women of any race and she just proves you can push harder and persevere and keep going when someone tells you no Mm. and that's the story of Bessie Coleman that's incredible she's so cool (laughs) it comes to a screeching halt it does it's like and then she died oh my god I just I I love hearing like women like that like about their backstories and like all the shit they had to go through like it's insane because like you see this woman in flight gear and you're like, I know there must be a story there, but what is it? You know what I'm saying? Because oh, yeah. like women just didn't fly planes back then <laughs> willy nilly. So like, how did she do this? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. She's, she's a great, it was a great joy researching yeah. her story because every single piece, and it wasn't even hard. Oh, and I got, did I say where I got my sources from? No. Oh, um, the history channel, the Smithsonian, the Atlantic Wikipedia and the history chicks. Perfect. Yeah. Just great. Everybody had wonderful things to say mm. about her. There's not one soul who's like, Betty <laughs> Coleman. She sucks. Everybody was like, she's great. Learn more about her. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. All right. You well, ready let's for get, more? Let's get more drinks. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. We're back. We are back with a new lady and a new cocktail. And this is like <laughs> the burntest our cocktails have been <laughs> since Joan of Arc. Okay. So I really wanted to put a fire element into this cocktail. I understand why. Um, but I kind of fucked it up a little bit. Okay. No, it's so great. It's great. <laughs> this cocktail is called Bird on Fire. Um, and... It is an ounce and a half of mezcal, um, half an ounce of orange liqueur, half an ounce of um, chocolate liqueur. It is um, a squeeze of fresh blood orange juice. And you shake all that together and then you garnish it with a burnt slice of blood orange and shaved chocolate. So I purchased this week a culinary blowtorch so I could really get that burned look. Um, like on meringue. Yes. On, mm-hmm. Like on a meringue, on a creme brulee. I was like, this is so exciting. Um, but, you know, it doesn't come with the fuel because they can't really like be just putting butane 
on the shelf at the store. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, they have at it. Michael's? They have it in, like, Lowe's and stuff. Like, <laughs> but, like, I ordered this, like, culinary torch from Amazon. And they're like, yeah, we can't be, like, shipping butane all over the place. So. Right. Um, so I looked for it and I couldn't find it. So we just stuck this piece in Allie's um, <laughs> wood fire. Did you turn the burner off? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> look we at stuck me being a grown up. Look at you. Um, I left one on all night one time and it was horrifying. I leave the oven on, regu- on a regular basis. Down. Um, but, but I feel <laughs> like Cinderella used to sleep next to the stove. That's true. The fire? That's true. The stove. Cinders. Um, <laughs> I hope no fire pe- people, fire protectors what do you call them fire protectors firefighters <laughs> shout <laughs> shout at us i hope no firefighters are listening because they're like oh my god i love fire protectors i think this is new <laughs> you know how in the harry potter books when they're going and ron says healers and harry's yes. like you mean doctors and yeah. ron's like you mean those people who cut what? people open <laughs> no i mean that's healers crazy. that's how i feel about fire protectors yeah. well cheers cheers to the first responders yes <laughs> Ah, it's very good. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever had mezcal and chocolate liqueur together. Yeah, I wanted to create kind of like an orange chocolate, like smoky kind of cocktail. Which is funny because like chocolate comes from the rainforest and Mm -hmm. mezcal is a lot like tequila, if Mm -hmm. I'm correct, right? Mm -hmm. So then it seems like I should be familiar with these flavors together. Yeah. You would think that there would be more like chocolate margaritas. Yeah, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds disgusting. But, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> but here we are. Um, so yeah, bird on fire. There it is. Um, okay. So what do you know, Allie, about Katniss Everdeen? Okay. So this series came out. I was married and I was teaching middle school. Like okay. when this came out, uh, I read all three of them immediately. Mm-hmm. Pre the movies. I know that... Katniss, um, her lives with her mother and younger sister. Her father died in some sort of coal fire explosion. Mm -hmm. Um, she lives in a dystopian future North America, but she lives probably around Maryland or Pennsylvania. I feel like is where district 12 is. We're East coasters. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like Katniss uh, is good with archery. She sneaks outside of the fence and hunts and people let her do it because they're hungry. Um, She has this two boys obsessed with her, which is how every story is. The normal (laughs) Mm -hmm. girl has all the boys. Mm -hmm. Um, Rory Gilmore all over again. Right. Exactly. She volunteers as tribute Mm -hmm. um, for her sister, Prim Rose. They both have plant names Mm -hmm. and then um she ends up becoming the symbol of the revolution and going into an uprising and then the third book is about a war um and spoiler her little sister dies Mm -hmm. uh and her boyfriend slash husband never actually loves her because he's taken over by the government (laughs) (laughs) that's what i know i mean i hope Peter gets over the brainwashing by the end (laughs) I don't think I think he doesn't. Really? Is that like a conspiracy? Like is that like a theory in that my like he head, never in my head I think he always like secretly wants to wake up and strangle her at night. Wow. But he like watches the footage of how he used to feel and like attempts to bold reading it's my reading bold <laughs> reading that's why i think it's such a I tragedy i think that speaks to your trust issues <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't met me i don't like anyone 
if I tell you I like you online, I'm lying. <laughs> Just My kidding. brother has been in love with Allie since the fourth grade, and she regularly is like, you don't even like me. <laughs> I'm like, I wake up. <laughs> he wakes up in the morning, and I'll be like, why are you staring at me? <laughs> and I'll, I'll be like, because you were dreaming about someone else. Yeah. And he's like, no, I was <laughs> Oh He's my like, goodness. I was dreaming about skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? What was her name? <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst person alive. Ooh, it's fine. <laughs> I do the same thing. Holla at me, everybody totally like fine. that. <laughs> okay, tell me, though, because it's been a while since okay. we've all read The Hunger Games. Yes. We all love J-Law. Mm-hmm. 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 And I just need to like sink into this. Okay. So I'm going to say right off the bat, like, you know, this is probably kind of a meld between the books and the movies because I got a lot of this online from like YouTube channels. Like I think it was like called Movie Flame. And then I got some from like some other YouTube videos and like what Wikipedia and then the Hunger Games wiki fandom <laughs> page. Like, so I don't know, you know, like, I don't know where the books kind of end and the movies begin because it's been a really long time since I read it. Because when you started reading them, you're like, Katie, you have to read this. And I remember sneaking the books into like music class and (laughs) reading the Hunger Games during school. I was like, this book is amazing. (laughs) And the movies did well. So it's like they got those blurred lines. Mm -hmm. Real Robin Thicke in here. Exactly. All right. Um, Okay. So... Before we begin the story of Katniss Everdeen herself, I think we have to set the stage a little bit of like what's going on in the books. And I'm going to tell you about the world of Panem created by writer Suzanne Collins in her book series, The Hunger Games. So obviously the book is set in the country of Panem. This country is geographically where the United States is, but the country has shrunk dramatically after global warming caused the sea levels to rise to a point where whole continents were submerged in water. And this is the only livable like landmass on the globe. And it is like a tiny United States. That's so, interesting. I don't think yeah. I realized all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, on the globe? On the globe, apparently. How come Everest is not sticking up? Who knows? <laughs> Where's Mount Ararat? <laughs> my Bible fans out nobody there. Nobody knows. Um, maybe it's still sticking out, but nobody can live there because it's a glacier. Mm. And nobody was up there. You know, like see, people were already on the U.S. I in see, the middle so of the continent. we all crammed into so the we middle. all crammed in. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, folding a piece of paper with a bunch of marbles on it. And rolling them down a hill? Yes. Into a place. Got into it. oblivion. Um, so they split the country, this last remaining landmass, into 13 districts and a capital. Each district is responsible for producing one thing in particular for the rest of the country. The capital, kind of like D.C., is not considered a district. It's kind of its own entity where the laws are made by the wealthy and powerful. Um, and even though the goods produced by the district should be shared equally, the capital gets most of them in gross excess. And I always found it interesting that the capital was like more of like an L.A. It's to yeah. the West. Yeah. I thought it was a very modern reading. Good job, Suzanne. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine it because like it seems very L.A., but it's like set in like the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. Because um, they had to be pushed in. Yeah, exactly. So just imagine like if L.A. was D.C. <laughs> If L.A. was D.C., but in the Rockies. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now you all get it. 
Um, they wear crazy outfits and wild hair and makeup. They fucking love to be entertained. They are just like very vapid people. Um, they even drink a liquid that makes them vomit so they can eat more food at parties. I have asked even for though that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've ordered that at a bar before. <laughs> and like, even though people are like starving in other districts, they're like, Everything's great here. Um, and this kind of major inequality obviously results in a rebellion. So this first rebellion is years before the Hunger Games even starts. About, I think it's like 75 years. Mm-hmm. These were called the Dark Days, and it resulted in the capital defeating all of the districts, showing them just how powerful they were. But as a consequence for their rebellion, the capital created the Hunger Games in which each district would send two children, a boy and a girl, between the ages of 12 and 18 every year to an arena and have them fight to the death, leaving only one victor. So that's kind of the backstory on why the Hunger Games exist. So now I'm going to kind of go into what each district does and kind of the characteristics because I <laughs> I wasn't going to go into this and then I saw a YouTube video on it um, and I was like, wow, that's really fucking interesting. Um Two really important things. Mm-hmm. A, when these books came out, people, parents in middle schools were like really upset about it because they were really? so violent. Mm. Um, and they were just like, it's so unrealistic and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, A, the Coliseum existed. Like people did have to fight to the death. So right. like, let's remember that. Um, and then revolutions happen. Like, I don't understand why you're so upset. But people are very, very into um, censorship for their children. And B, have you read The Ballad of Songbird and Snakes? No, I haven't. Mm-mm. Okay. The prequel, Katie, it's incredible. I really? read it this summer. Claire had me read it. Claire's my best friend. She had me read it, and it is President Snow as a child, Ooh. and it takes you through his story. And I cannot tell you how many times I went, <gasps> Ooh, so it, like, interesting. It makes you love him. And really? then by the end, you hate him so again. Interesting. It's so good. Anybody uh, who's very into Katniss, go back and read this book because it came out with a, a lack of fanfare and it should have had fanfare. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. I'm sorry. Um, and I do also want to give a shout out to Battle Royale, which was a Japanese um, book mm. that came out years before. Correct. Um, that has kind of a similar premise. Um, I don't know. Like, it's one of those things like, they're very similar, but also like kind of different. So like, you know, Suzanne Collins is like, look, I didn't know about it. Like apparently it was brought to her attention, like while she was writing it. Was but, like, what people, I read online. People fight to the death. It's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a new, like, it's not like a totally new concept. I think just the idea of it happening to children, because she said the idea came to her from like, she was watching TV and she was kind of flipping back and forth between channels. And she was seeing, um, I think it was a reality TV show. And then, oh, fuck, what was it? It was like the Olympics or something. And she was like, like, and the two just became like melded in my head. I love the idea (laughs) of reality TV being the Olympics. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sports sports are the ultimate reality TV. And I feel like it wasn't the Olympics. It was like some sort of killing show. Um, But it was like, you know, just this thing of like, people who normally would not be just being totally ruthless okay you know like you're being put in a position of massive pressure where like you wouldn't kill so like normally like you go through life not killing anybody mm-hmm. and then you're being put in a re- an arena and saying fight to the death and you're like okay i'll fucking do it so it was a video of dads at little league games yes 
<laughs> she was watching the <laughs> Little League majors. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so now that you know like a little bit about the world, um, so District 1 is one of the wealthier districts because its job is to produce luxury items like gold, perfume, jewelry, wine, hair products, like shit like that. The taxables. Exactly. And because they produce these fine and like quote unquote necessary items to the capital, they treat them a lot better than the others. So for kids that live in this district, the Hunger Games is like an opportunity Mm. they call them like career kids like it's like if you get into the hunger games it's a chance for you to get like wealth and like notoriety and like they like train them all the kids in in district one like get trained to like win the hunger games they're the ivy league exactly they're the ivy league kids um district two is in charge of masonry and they're treated a little bit better than the other districts as well because they stayed loyal to the capital during the first rebellion um and because of this not they, good to be on the wrong side of history yeah. guys <laughs> and because of this they are most often recruited into the capital police aka the peacekeepers and they also see the hunger say games that again as, <laughs> <laughs> they also see the hunger games as kind of a career opportunity and like an honor i mean are the peacekeepers just stormtroopers though Yes, they're stormtroopers mixed with (laughs) the D.C. police. Um, So (laughs) District 3. I have a story to tell you after the show on that. Maybe for Patreon. Um, Also, I'm going to say... I was talking to someone recently about how cool Casey's cousin Sarah is because she's part of the Secret Service. My God, I know we keep bringing I her know. up. She's we great. We keep bringing her up. We have to. We should interview her. Oh my God, she would love that. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Case, because we were talking about the Secret Service because I was defending Monica Lewinsky. This was all in the same conversation I told you about. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, my cousin, like, you know, Casey's cousin is actually in the Secret Service. And he goes, man, that must be so cool for him. He must be such a cool guy. And I was like, actually, it's a woman and her name is Sarah. And he goes, they let women in the Secret Service? I was like, it's not the 1950s. What? (laughs) My, oh, my. I could tell that he was, like, genuinely nervous. He's like, a woman can't protect the president. And I was like. Number one, you dissed Monica Lewinsky, and that's not okay with me. Number two, you think that women can't be in the Secret Service. That's also not okay with me. And also, like, their job is to, like, secretly hide in the crowd and, like, I make know. sure that shit doesn't go down. Women are the best people watchers. Let me, t- I mean, I probably shouldn't be broadcasting this, but yeah, Casey's cousin's job it was, like, literally to, like, prepare a foreign country for the president to come. She mm. is badass. She's you know that so they're in cool. charge of the inauguration, not the Capitol Police? Yes, Things and that's why it's supposed to go smoother. Also, Capitol Police, who did your job, good for you. Yeah, those who didn't, fuck off. Yeah. Um. Okay. Literally off. District <laughs> three. <laughs> three. Three. They produce technology. So like televisions, computers, and whatnot. So they're a very important district. But I thought this was really interesting. This importance doesn't grant them any favors because a lot of their work ends up being very like minute, like microchipping, putting the shit together. So a lot of their work ends up being done in factories with like very little pay. So they're the Wozniaks to the jobs. Wozniak. I don't know what that means. Steve Wozniak worked for Steve Jobs or Ooh. with Steve Jobs, but we don't know who he is. Oh, really? That's so weird. I think of it as like, like techies. No. I think of it as like China. How like China? Oh, like oh, interesting. Yeah, like okay. an Apple, you know, corporation they're the factory in China. town. Yeah, they're the factory town. 
Um, which also means like they have also like really poor air quality and shit. Um, district four is located where Louisiana once was and their industry is like fishing because they have access to water. Um, they're also really good at the hunger games and being cool <laughs> and being cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> district five is in charge of power production. So they power all of Pan Am, but obviously mostly the capital. Um, and where are they? Is it like wind power, sun power? Do we know where they are? They have hydroelectric power. Okay. They have wind power. They like do everything. They're on the Mississippi then. Yeah. Cause okay. like in one like, like time they like, like, you know, or like we know how to like we're going to blow up that water like hydroelectric plant to like get back at the capital. Like they're a very rebellious district. Very cool. Um, district six is in charge of transportation. So they make all the trains and aircrafts and whatnot. Mm-hmm. District seven is in charge of lumber. So they provide anything to do with wood or paper. They're the Appalachia. Um, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, they are really good with axes. <laughs> District 8 is responsible for textiles, so clothing and, of course, like police uniforms, which means they have a lot of factories. And again, the air quality is really poor and there's hardly any green space to be found anywhere. Um, The people live in crowded tenements and work really long hours, which makes them notoriously like rebellious. Um, District 9 produces grain, so they are split up into farmers who grow the grain and then people who work in the factories processing their grain. So this is kind of like a 50-50, like they have... Like, and then the people in the factories are not allowed to, like, go into the green spaces. And it's like, what the fuck? Um, District 10 raises livestock for solely meat production. And District 11 raises livestock for dairy production. And they are also in charge of the rest of agriculture. So they grow fruits and vegetables and things like that. And this would seem... (laughs) And this would seem like a really ideal district for them to be in um, since they are surrounded by food and green and pastures. But... They are one of the poorest districts and they are heavily monitored to make sure that no one is eating the food that they are producing. And if they are caught, they are brutally punished. But they have little ways of rebelling. Uh, They would send Mockingjays around to the district to communicate with each other. Um, So they are kind of like a low-key rebellious community. Um, And then District 12 is the smallest and poorest district, and they are in charge of coal production and mining. This is the district we know the most about because it is, of course, where our heroine Katniss Everdeen lives. But not only does she live in the poorest district, but she lives in the poorest part of that district called the Seam. This district is responsible for mining, which, of course, is the most dangerous job in the district. So... It's like not only do they have not a lot of money, they have the highest amount of like casualties. Um, but the good thing about this area is that there is a black market in this district called the Hob, where people can kind of trade and barter to make ends meet. Um, this district also backs up to a forest, which is really advantageous. And even though there is an electric fence, it's rarely turned on, allowing Katniss and others to hunt in the forest for food and potential income. And then there's District 13, which is kind of the secret district. So they originally produced nuclear weapons, but the other districts didn't know this. They thought they were graphite mining community. So when the first revolution was coming to an end, they obviously held a brunt of the power and they actually made a deal with the capital and they were allowed to secede and become an independent state if they kept to themselves and went underground. They just wouldn't bother each other. That was kind of the plan. So after the revolution, District 13 went underground and the capital would continuously for the next, again, like 75 years show 
the residents of Pan Am fake footage of a ruined city as a warning call that they had the means to end their entire district. Like, yeah, don't fuck with us. Propaganda to the fullest. Absolutely. There's a lot of propaganda in this story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, when we meet Katniss, she is 16 years old. She lives with her sister Prim and her mother. Katniss has had to become the breadwinner of the family after her father died in a tragic mining accident when she was 11 years old. She spends her time going to school, but mostly hunting in the forest with her best friend, Gail, using her trusty bow and arrow and her foraging skills, which she learned from her father, to capture food for her family to eat and potentially sell on the black market. So every day is kind of a struggle for the Everdeen family. But Katniss has been lucky so far in that she hasn't been chosen for the Hunger Games yet. But when we come into this story, it's Prim's first year. It is the 74th Hunger Games, so the whole town gathers in the town square for the reaping, which is, of course, when they choose the children who will participate. It's kind of like a lottery system. And, of course, Prim is chosen this year which is super unlikely right because super unlikely Katniss had her name in the bowl like a lot yeah because I think you can also from from what I remember you can sell your name for more grain exactly like you can choose like you can sell like you can like get money if you put your name in more times I think for like other families and stuff something like that um so so yeah so Prim is like really unlikely she's like literally like one in a million shot and her name gets chosen and Of course, this is devastating to Katniss. She's like, I've worked so fucking hard to keep my family together. So while they're taking Prim up to meet Effie Trinket, who is the, you know, a spokesperson for the Capitol. Elizabeth Banks. Mm -hmm. Um, She volunteers as tribute. Because you can do that. And a lot of District 1 people do do that. Yes. Yes. On purpose. They do it because they're like, oh, I've been trained for this. Like, yeah, I'll volunteer. Like, they have a lot more choice in the matter because Mm. they can train for it and it's like yeah i'm trained for it i'll just do it so like that random kid doesn't have to do it and it's not a death sentence to them it's not no like district 12 it absolutely is it is i mean they so often do not win that there is only one other surviving winner who of course becomes their mentor in 75 years 50 people yeah so so yeah so just to give you like a picture of like the outlook for district 12 is fucking grim um, and of course, um, she volunteers as tribute, so she takes her place. And after that, the baker's son, Peter Malark, is chosen as the male tribute. No one volunteers for him. <laughs> Come on, Peter. Uh, Katniss says her goodbyes to her family, and in the book, her friend Madge gives her a token to take with her. It's a pin with a mocking J on it. I think in the movie, like she like gets it in the hob at the black market or something. It was too much to introduce another female it's, character. Yeah, way too in much. In the movies. Especially because in the book, she's like, yeah, I guess Madge is my friend. I mean, we eat lunch together. <laughs> I see her sometimes. Yeah. So they are, um, Peta and Katniss are taken to the Capitol to prep for the games. They are prepped in all sorts of ways. They're given a total makeover. I specifically just remember like the scene of like them waxing her legs. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, <laughs> I haven't shaved in my yeah, life. In my life. Uh, they are physically trained. Like they're given lessons on how to use all the different equipment. Um, and they are given a mentor, a former Hunger Games winner from their district. Named Woody Allen. And yes. <laughs> and for Katniss and Peta, it is Woody Allen, a.k.a. Hamish. I love Abernathy. him. What? Fantastic. Casting. Perfect casting. And 
so he's there to kind of give them advice. And the best piece of advice he kind of gives them is like, get sponsors any way you can because a part of the games is that the wealthy people in the district are watching for entertainment so they can sponsor you and like send you things like he says like a sponsor sending you a knife when you're like trapped in a net is a godsend he was like and they will do it so like if you get sponsors you're so much better off be likable exactly so and one of so one of the ways they do this is by becoming a crowd favorite couple. Obviously, this isn't an option for some of the other teams because it's like a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old, right, you know? They can play their cards. Exactly. So they're playing the cards that they're dealt. Um, they start playing up a relationship that is, in the beginning, of course, is just for media attention. Like, I think from the beginning, like, PETA has always liked Katniss. Um, but soon, obviously, like, by the end of the book, it turns into kind of a real romance. Um, but in the beginning, like, it is, again, propaganda for the games. And and Gail few... is like, fuck this guy. I know. Gail's like, what the hell? Hens were a son, too. Mm-hmm. It was like, get me out of here. <laughs> so a few other iconic things happen during this time period before the games. Of course, we have the parade where Katniss and PETA stir the crowd with their outfits that literally catch on fire, designed by, of course, the incredible Cinna, Cinna. who is played by Lenny Kravitz in the movie, which is so, so wild. great. <laughs> when Cinna died, I wanted to die. Oh, Oh my gosh. It was not fair for him. Then we have the private session with the game makers where the tributes are meant to kind of show off their skills. This gives them points and the higher points they get, it usually attracts more sponsors. This is literally sponsor winners. It is what they do in the NFL. Yeah. This is not, not a thing. No, 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 no. Like they show up and they show how high they can jump and then they can possibly get on an NFL team. It's wild. Yes, it is. Um, and Katniss is frustrated because these guys aren't paying attention to her. And she's like, this could literally mean life or death for me. So she takes one of her arrows and shoots it through the apple in the mouth of a suckling pig. And at first, everyone is afraid that she has offended them and scared them. But they end up appreciating her fire and tenacity. And they award her an astonishing 11 out of 12 points. And then, of course, it's time for the games themselves. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the competition, but the main facts are that it is brutal. Every second is televised. The game makers cause trouble on purpose, like natural disasters, to create viewer excitement if there's not enough killing. (laughs) And Katniss befriends a 12-year-old girl from District 11 named Rue, citing that she reminds her of her sister Prim. Rue says that she knows she can trust Katniss from her mocking J-Pin, because that again, was how they used to communicate with each other and the birds in District 11. Sorry. (laughs) Jesus Christ, I'm making everything worse. That was a big old thing. Wow. (laughs) Um, So her and Rue form an alliance. They become really close. But unfortunately, Rue is killed by another tribute, which, of course, devastates Katniss. She lays her out and surrounds her body with white flowers. And then she gives the infamous District 12 three-finger salute which, of course, then the whole world sees. She says, quote, It is an old and rarely used gesture of our district, occasionally seen at funerals. It means thanks. It means admiration. It means goodbye to someone you love. And when the people of District 11 see this, they are so moved that they start a rebellion in their district. 
It is. Um, I think in the book, it's the most in the first book. Yeah, it is the most chilling moment. It is one of you can tell that nobody has ever buried another child. Nobody has ever performed a funeral service in the Hunger Games. Yeah, in the Hunger Games. So mm-hmm. there are people watching on live TV as this teenager is performing a burial service on her own yeah how moving how moving like can that be it's it's incredible and people are like oh my god these kids have feelings yeah. like it's where you start to connect the the lines yeah and i think this is the first time you know in the hunger games where like people are starting to see like oh my gosh like these kids are fucking human yeah like what the hell <laughs> like so in the end, the last two tributes standing are Katniss and Peeta, <laughs> and they are being told to fight to the death because there can only be one winner. But Katniss has a plan. She pulls out poisonous nightshade berries, and she suggests that they commit dual suicide. She's like, let's not give them what they fucking want. But the game makers, of course, can't have this. So they just intervene. And they're like, never mind. You're both winners. <laughs> you're from the same district. It'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. And... Then everybody's like, cool, and they go back home, and that game maker is, like, murdered. (laughs) Um, And when they go back home, they're living a much more comfortable life since winners are granted plenty of food and housing and money. But President Snow is not happy, and he tells her that her stunt at the last games has caused an uprising all over the districts. So this is kind of where like book one ends and book two begins. And so we know that like start of book two, like they're kind of on their like their victory tour. And, and book two is blue. Yes. Book one is black. <laughs> book two is blue. Exactly. And so they're kind of on their victory tour, but they know that like they've upset a lot of people. So they kind of try and distract everyone by being like, we're getting married. And Peter proposes to Katniss on TV and the whole capital is like, yay, I love it. Because again, they just love any kind of entertainment. The more dramatic it is, the more they fucking love it. Oh, it's a reality show for sure. It really is. But President Snow isn't fooled. And he announces that for the 75th Hunger Games, they will choose tributes from past winners to participate. Of course they will. And since District 12 only has three living winners and only one of them is female, Katniss knows that she will be going back into the arena. They keep playing up the marriage thing, and then President Snow gets a big middle finger when Cinna creates a wedding dress for her that burns away on stage to reveal a Mockingjay costume, which is, of course, the symbol of the rebellion, and it results in Cinna being killed in front of Katniss before she enters the arena for the second time. I always picture this tube as like being in Star Trek yes. when they like <laughs> I agree. And, I like agree. like feel, like uh, what they like teleport them mm-hmm. to another location and it's like the tube comes down and like you can see what's happening and then all of a sudden done. Yep. And it's like she saw him die and, and then she and then she's in a field and she's and like she what? Has, she has to go for the cornucopia exactly. or whatever it is to get her bow and arrow. <laughs> Exactly. And if you're not a fan, be, be a I'm fan. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> so and a lot good. more stuff happens in this go around. But in the end, the tributes who have formed an alliance kind of make a plan to like shut shit down. And they end up working together to destroy the arena as a whole. And so they like shoot an arrow into like the 
you know, biosphere and like when lightning strikes and like burn the whole fucking shit down. And is this the clock one? I don't remember. I think this arena, like they couldn't figure it out because it's like a clock and it Ooh. keeps moving on 12 sections. Oh, maybe. I, can, I can't I don't remember, remember this year, but I know that they kept having to figure out this pattern. Yeah. And they were like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. And then they have to break the electric box. Yes. <laughs> so they break the electric box. The whole arena goes dark. And then they're like, fuck, we have to scatter because we are going to be arrested. So, but like Katniss is injured. So she like passes out and she like wakes up in District 13. And she was like, I thought this didn't even fucking exist. And then she realizes that there has been a deep-seated rebellion for quite some time. And they have chosen her to be their, like, mascot. But then she finds out that PETA has been captured by the Capitol. And she is completely devastated. Well, the end of the second... Is this, like, the end of the second movie? (sighs) I don't remember. It's close to it, but I think the PETA character kills that scene oh my gosh when yes. he he's upset that she has passed out and he's running at the glass like yeah. crying for her like he loves her and then the next time you see him he's like trying to kill her yeah and you're like, well what the and, fuck like in between you have the i think he does so good in the propaganda videos when he is like i'm speaking for the capital and this violence has to stop and he's yeah. like tearing up like it's mm, it's really amazing he's a great actor good for him what's his name see him in little manhattan it's he's such a good movie not hemsworth no <laughs> that's um, his name <laughs> josh hitchum hitchum you would Something know like that i don't know people's names um i don't remember <laughs> Josh Hutchinson. Josh Hutchinson, Peta. I believe is his name. Peta. Um, so again, she's rescued by the rebellion, and she then finds herself in this whole new world that she thought was completely gone. Um, and the president of District 13, Al McCoyne, is like, I want you to be like the main source of propaganda for our upcoming rebellion. And she says, all right, I'll do it under a few cir- like circum- like conditions, whatever. She demands that the leader of District 13, Alma Coyne, grant immunity to all of the victors of the Hunger Games. She demands the right to kill President Snow herself. And she asks for her family to keep their cat buttercup. And she asks for the ability to hunt with Gail. She's like, I don't want to be stuck down here. I want to be able to like still be myself and go hunting with my best friend. So she says, okay. And this starts off a series of propaganda videos. Cause again, everything in this world is filmed, which feels so similar to today where I feel like we're all being filmed all the time. Oh, constantly. Yeah. And so it's like these series of videos where like Katniss is going around to other districts to rally support, but she's also really distressed that Peta is still captured by the Capitol. And, she's really seeing what's going on in the districts, which is shocking to her because she wasn't allowed to leave district 12. Right. And everything culminates again. I am blowing through these books. So I apologize. I missed favorite part, but this all (laughs) culminates in a big battle at the Capitol and this explosion in front of the president's mansion. It's a bombing. And this not only kills a number of innocent children, but also Katniss's sister, Prim, which is the whole reason she was in this fucking mess to begin with. Katniss is devastated, but President Coyne tells her that she has, like, arranged something special for her because she knows how sad she is. She's like, I have, we've captured Snow, and he is waiting in, like, the town square for you to assassinate him, like, publicly. So she arranges this public execution 
But right before Snow tells her, he's like, look, I promised you in the beginning that I would never, I wouldn't lie to you. We would be honest with each other. And he goes, and I'm, I've never lied to you. And he, he hadn't. And he goes, we didn't put on that bombing. That was done by the rebellion, by the revolution. They killed your sister. They killed your sister, not me. And she goes back and she's thinking, she's like, I know he's not lying. And I know that like president coin would do anything to win. So she takes her arrow and she points it up instead of straight and kills president coin instead of snow. It's so interesting because you can't tell whether it's a lesser of two evils or it's siding with the evil you know yeah you know what i mean like i'd rather be with the evil i know than the evil i don't understand right which is what i think she's doing and she knows that like snow is captured he's not gonna like escape and cause more trouble you know so of course like after this happens like she's arrested a mob erupts um, like they kill snow and she is put on trial but she isn't quitted because they're like she's insane she obviously wouldn't do that if she was in her right mind and they just send Katniss home to District 12. She is eventually joined by PETA after he recovers from his capital brainwashing. Which he doesn't. <laughs> which Allie says he didn't. <laughs> um, but she is suffering from severe PTSD and she is depressed and suicidal. She is like not doing okay. She has frequent nightmares, but PETA is there to help her along the way. He even plants plants plantus he even plants primroses outside of their home um for prim as the years go on they have two children together and she finds a bit of peace but she's still haunted by her memories so she plays a game with herself where she tries to drown out those thoughts by remembering good things that people did but like a lot of people with ptsd it's not an easy road so Katniss is a really interesting character for a lot of reasons. And I think this is one of the most important ones. In a lot of fictional stories, especially in the fantasy or sci-fi genre, characters go through a lot of bullshit. And it typically ends with, and then the world got better and things were fine. But Suzanne Collins chose to extend the books to show what can really happen to people after they experience something terrible. They can have flashbacks and nightmares and bouts of depression, um, even if on the surface is everything is okay. I mean, when we see her at the end, Katniss is safe with PETA watching her children play in a meadow. There is no threat, but it doesn't change the fact that she went through some horrible shit and it doesn't change the fact that she struggles with when to tell her children the truth about their parents. Like, when do you start that story with your kids? When do you break their illusion that like the world has always been this way? As soon as they can talk. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure PETA went through some of the same stuff. But again, like some people, he's able to be the strong one through it. You know, I think it's I think it's bad to say that all troops have PTSD. And I think it's bad to say that none of them do. You know, it's like you have to accept that some people do and some people don't. And it's like. She's saying just because you go through something traumatic doesn't mean you'll come out of it, you know, the same way. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to say. And I think sometimes we want people who go through hard times just to get over it. And we need to allow people to have their own space to deal with their feelings. 
which I think she does beautifully in how Peta and Katniss and basically the rest of this world kind of heals and goes on and moves on. Oh, I agree. Um, so now that we have kind of the story, I think we also need to talk about Katniss in regards to feminism. So many people see her as an incredible feminist icon. She is strong yet vulnerable. She's brave, but she will tell you exactly what she's afraid of. People say she's the anti Bella Swan, but I feel like that's unfair to Bella Swan. I because yeah, because I think Bella Swan was. Th- I mean, they were both thrust into these situations, but like you know, I don't know. They're both. I think it's they're just storybooks. They're both storybooks. <laughs> they're both YA novels, and like I think people love to like shit on Bella Swan, but <laughs> I don't know. I think it was just like the YA love triangle of the early 2000s. Like they had to be compared to one another. I know. I know. Um, But again, I think that brings us to a really great point is that because this is a YA book, young adult fiction, some of her power gets stripped away in the discourse because of the classic question, but who will she marry? Are you team Peta or are you team Gail? Are you team Edward or are you team you Jacob? Jacob. <laughs> Which now, obviously the answer is Jacob and Gail. <laughs> these, no! These women oh have no God. idea what they're doing. I am totally uh, Peta and Edward. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, those are probably the better choices. <laughs> I am so much like, why didn't you marry your best friend? Excuse me. <laughs> because Gail totally flips at the end. Oh, he's insane. Yeah. And he becomes like, I think he cares more about the rebellion in the end than he does Katniss. I okay. But this is my whole problem is they focus way too much on that question. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. no, I agree. And that's like the whole it's not pro- a problem. Again, it's like, this is what's frustrating is like, you see Katniss in the books as this amazing heroine. And she specifically does not fawn over boys. She has a straightforward friendship with Gail and she sees Peta as a teammate and like kind of a rival in the beginning. <laughs> and there's this great three minute speech. It was a competition, a three minute speech competition by Bailey Vasquez. You can find her on YouTube and she goes off. She names every single magazine, which focus solely on this question. And it is like 20 magazines, like from like, you know, the National Enquirer to like, like Teen Vogue about how to good L, of a, like to archer the, she is. Right. To the Washington Post. Like everyone was like, are you team Peter or are you team Gail? <laughs> and she was like, like, I mean, and you see these quizzes and there's not even a picture of Katniss in one of them. Like it's all about the boys and she is the main character. She said that she had to go to the third Google page to find an article that wasn't about this debate. The third? The third. The third O. Yes. The Google. I haven't been to the for years. I love it. In this speech, she's like, you know, she goes, the second page, you're like, man, this is kind of exhausting. And she goes, by the time you get to the third page, she goes, you have given up all hope. It's true. It's why we all pay to be on the first. Exactly. And she goes on to the point and she's like, when male characters are the main protagonist, this is never the focus of their character. And I would like to bring up 
Luke Skywalker. He doesn't even have a love interest except for like a weird crush he has on his sister before he knows that it's his sister. Yeah. We focus on Luke's ability to use the force and defeat defeat Darth Vader. But when Katniss, even though she literally wins the Hunger Games while Peta is injured in a fucking cave. Twice. And <laughs> leads a rebellion while Peta is trapped in the Capitol. We're not talking about her. We're talking about her relationships. And also, I mean, let's be fair. Peta is like painting himself like a cake. Yeah. Also. <laughs> this cake. Like, that's what he does. He's a cake maker. He right? is a cake maker. He's, he's like, I can make things pretty. He's um, making things like out of like. Um, he's good at camouflage, I think yes, is what they said. Because yeah. of his cake-ing. <laughs> he's a baker. He's like Duff from Charm City Cakes. <laughs> yeah, I was going for it. That's a female job. But okay, I like Duff. <laughs> um. So, and this is why, like, normally when I do a fictional character, I break down their main relationships and, like, their attributes. But I didn't do this this time because I think that it's outrageous that we focus on the question of boys rather than the female character herself. Right. And it also distracts us from the fact that, like, Peta and Gail are obviously presented as two opposing forms of masculinity, which I think is really interesting Mm -hmm. because, like, just as you mentioned, like Peta is seen as like a like a baker, like a lesser form like of masculinity. He could never win he this without Katniss. And that's the thing in the beginning, like he says, like he's like, well, I'll never win, and she gets super mad at him. He's like, don't. She's like, don't fucking say that, you know. And like then you have Gail, who's presented this like hyper form of masculinity, even though. Katniss is the strongest of all of them, sacrificing herself to save her family, of which she is the father figure and the breadwinner. Winner. I'm. I just. I don't understand why, like, I mean, I do understand because this is what they're going for is that young adult audience of right. like, you know, I, You're I, a normal I understand, girl and I understand based on you. economics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, after the Hunger Games, sales of archery sets skyrocketed. Some stores couldn't keep bows and arrows in stock that cost like at the low end around $130. Oh, yeah. All my nieces and nephews are archers. Yes. Like they have archery sets. It's wild. One training center said that classes filled up within 24 hours and some girls were on a six month waiting list. This one but was their I mean, hair braided. This is a local plug, probably. This is a local plug, but the Lutherville Timonium Recreation Council in suburban Baltimore had a waiting list of more than a hundred children with three to four kids asking to be added every day. That's only because their moms wanted our And I just want to say, <laughs> did we see a dual athletic and economic boom after Legolas? I don't think so. Maybe it happened, but I didn't remember it. <laughs> I love Orlando Bloom. He's great. He's he great. Broke his his legs. He back. He walks on top of the snow. He broke his back but, in that filming. But were kids racing to archery after that like this? No, I don't because think so. boys have always been allowed to do archery. Exactly. Even and, elfish boys. And this is the thing. I think it is especially powerful that in the end she chooses to cook kill coin because she knows that the world will not get better if we just replace the current corrupt leader with another less obvious one she sees the bigger picture it's the moment in the book so there are many moments in those books where it's gruesome or it's surprising and you gasp like i did a lot of (gasps) but when she aimed her arrow and killed coin instead of rose i went 
what the fuck? And I went back and had to reread the previous pages yeah. because I wasn't sure what I read. Yeah. I was very surprised. And I thought for a YA novel, the third book specifically, and I tell my students this because there's some students who are really into American history. Yeah. And I'm like, if you're really into like rebellions and like going against like the government and like whatnot, like the Hunger Games number three. Mm-hmm. You got to get there because it really is the story of somebody realizing that both governments are really a a burden on society. Yeah. Both of them. Absolutely. And I think like it's a really important part because she makes the unpopular decision because she is one of the few people in the story who is always trying to do the right thing with no ulterior motive. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no th- reason she wants it. Right. There she doesn't want power, but Coin and Snow, that's all they want. That's all they desire. And she is like, no, no one who wants power that bad should fucking have it. And then it ends up that like the fucking captain from like District 11 who is this like badass like woman like becomes president and she's awesome. So a lot of literary scholars point to her resemblance to the Greek um, character Artemis, the Greek goddess. Um, She is the goddess of nature. We love Artemis. I I can't wait till we like actually do her. She is the bringer of light, the huntress, the protector of the vulnerable. But she is also quick to anger and she deals out justice with a vengeance. All very similar to Katniss. She makes men animals Mm. on a regular basis. Mm. (laughs) Both Artemis and Katniss are also very independent. And some people see Katniss's marriage and motherhood in the end as kind of like a betrayal to feminism. But I think it's just her finding another kinship with Artemis. Even though Artemis was a virgin, she was also the goddess of transition for females. One of her symbols is the moon, and women would pray to her while going through childbirth or puberty. Apparently, young girls would leave their dolls at her altar to be like, okay, I'm ready to be a woman now. I'm ready to like lay this down. And I think that when you pair these two strong women with their bows, because again, her like one of her other symbols is archery, you get the full picture that it's okay to not want those things for yourself and be an Artemis and just go in the woods and like, you know, do your thing. And it's okay if you do want them. I think one of the main things that I get, because a lot of people get mad at Katniss for becoming a mom, but motherhood is still a strong and brave thing to do. And I don't like that reading of it, that it's it's not feminist. It's entirely weird. So like to think that, feminism means anti-womanhood yeah because like by nature like having a child is one of the things we can do that men literally can't do yeah and it's like you can choice choose choice you can (laughs) you can choose to not have children and that is very very beautiful but it's it's funny because it's similar to something that we posted on our instagram earlier in the week yeah that's what made me think of it when i was doing this story was that um all moms are working moms yes and i know like i am a working mom with a job yes you are a working woman without children Mm -hmm. and it's like there isn't a stratification there and I know like there are times that my beautiful incredible empowering like um 
sister-in-law will so she was a paralegal Mm -hmm. and stopped doing that when she had children and my brother is the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and there are times when she'll say things like and don't judge me for xyz yeah and I'm like I really don't want you to think that I'm doing that but for so long in American society women with quote-unquote jobs have judged women who quote unquote work. Yeah. Because work and job is different. Mm-hmm. And it's just so sad that we have to feel that way. Um, and I think it's it's honestly because of the male gaze. Oh, yeah. Like there is no reason to be mad at Katniss for getting married and having kids except for the fact that men are going to look at that like, oh, well, she finally settled in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't have to settle in. No. But she did. So who the fuck cares? Yeah. Who the fuck cares? And I think that it's kind of like it's I think it's kind of a cool commentary on like she has had to be the male figure in her whole fucking story. And like she gets to just be like, yeah, I know that I'm probably supposed to like not get married, not have kids. Like I think she says at one point, she's like, I don't see myself having kids. But then like it ends up being that way. And like she struggles like Again, like I talked about, like she has a prop, like she's like, how do I tell my kids about this? And she does deal with like, and I think that that's kind of why she put it in there of like, how do women who have experienced trauma raise children? Because they do it every fucking day. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's an important part of the story to acknowledge is that women who have gone through trauma have to eventually, you know, like they think about that. Of like, how do I bring my kids into this? Do I shield them from it? Do I like, do I talk about it with them? And I think it's really important to have a really strong female character who deals with that because it's something that real women fucking go through. And I think the whole, the whole point of the Katniss story is that women are judged based on their choices. Yeah. Is it PETA? Is it Gail? Is she going to be a quote unquote feminist or is she going right. to get married? Is she going to be part of the Capitol right. rebellion? Right. Like- and it's just like, you know what? There's so, like w- uh, one woman's decision does not like earmark every woman's decision. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's great for YA people to read these books this book, the Twilight books, the Harry Potter books, like there are I just reread the Twilight books. They're so fun. They're so good, <laughs> except for New Moon when you want to cry the whole time. Oh, I, I always skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pages where it's like January, February, oh, Mar- and God. you feel your body you're dying like, and you're like, uh, this is uh, quarantine yes. shots in the gut every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I can't. Th- thank you for doing justice to Katniss, oh, Katie. Thank you. That I hope beautiful. that was okay. That I was, was so no. nervous. That was perfect. You did such a good job it was also like different than i normally do the like fictional characters oh you don't so. you don't like chronological i don't so i'm very <laughs> impressed with you i'm very Thank impressed you. with you you did a wonderful job but i think we need to compare these ladies yes we do in a little segment we like to call just the two of us okay so like the first thing i noticed was like the importance of farming and governmental control in these women's lives yeah absolutely and I kind of wrote the note like cotton and coal something that is necessary and everybody needs something that is absolutely crucial to society but it's not well regarded you know what I'm saying like the people who are actually putting forth the work like you know the people who work in like the agricultural oh, sector, they're underappreciated they're so underappreciated and underpaid in everything and I thought also like a Bessie being 
both African-American and Native American and Katniss being poor from District 12 mm-hmm. are like the most othered people in society. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm sure, like, I know that there are people who have wrote about, like, how we see racism in the districts. I didn't explore that too much, but like, because each district is its own kind of culture. And I think it's really interesting to like take a look at that because like we're we're seeing it more based on geographical than color. But I think it's really interesting to see those those differences because they like there's no like <laughs> actual reason that District 12 should be so poor when everybody should be technically like quote unquote sharing the resources, you know. Right. And, you know, it's funny when like discrimination factors come into play because we're so very used to race being the largest discrimination factor Mm -hmm. in the United States. But there are a lot of countries that have a very like monochromatic race. Mm -hmm. So then there are things like age and religion and gender and, you know, ability that like play into discrimination factors. And that's what we're seeing in Pan Am. Yeah, I feel like it's it kind of reminds me more of like caste system of like, no, that's just your role. Your role is to be poor, have poor children and continue being poor for the rest of your fucking life. And we played France as like super cool, but that doesn't mean France doesn't have their problems. Like, yes, maybe France accepted black people and women, but that doesn't mean that there weren't discrimination factors tearing them to shreds. Well, and I wrote. Like France in your story reminded me a lot of District 13 in my story Mm. where it's like these utopian places that should be the perfect place for our characters to go. It's like if you just can make it there, things will be better. But then you get there and it's like, oh, I'm here in France and like it is better. But there are still issues here that we have to address. Oh, there's the Emerald City, both of them. Exactly. And then in District 13, it's like I didn't really go into this too much, but like District 13 is like underground and they are independent. But each resident gets their agenda tattooed on their arm every single day. It's like a temporary tattoo. They get it. Everything is regimented. So it's like we are free from the capital, but how free are we really? Mm. And it's like, Bessie gets into France and she's like, yes, I can fly a plane here. But how far does that actually get me? You know what I'm saying? In a society that is so largely unequal for some people, it's like, how far can you really get? Yeah, but some of the greatest similarities for both Katniss and Bessie was their tenacity. Oh, my gosh. Yes. They are just like fighting like tooth and nail to make anything happen like when um when Katniss shoots the arrow through like the apple in that pig's mouth Mm -hmm. she is being exactly like I am a black woman I am gonna show up and I am gonna fly in your show and also fuck you sir yeah I feel like the the moment she shoots the arrow through the mouth is like Bessie landing in a field of like I'm here like you can't not pay attention to me because I'm a fucking like woman of color in a plane. Here's a biplane in your field. Like you're going to make a lot of money off of me. So yeah. sh- everybody like come around. Yeah. Gather around, please. Well, I love that you said that because I wrote that they would do anything and everything to survive because they both came from poverty. They both had to care for their siblings and like they both had their fathers gone at some point, mm. you know, like they started off with dads. And then they were fucking gone and they had to take over these roles. But I think one of the differences that like, you know, Bessie did get to live kind of a dream 
you know, Katniss, because she, you know, is a fictional character, she did have to, like, I feel like Katniss never got to do anything that she wanted to do. And right. it makes me really happy for Bessie that she got to, like, do something that was her dream. But also, like, via male sponsorship. And oh I my think gosh, they yes. both had that. Like, I think Hamish mm-hmm. in the Hunger Games story is like so much male sponsorship and yeah. Cinna oh my is a lot of male sponsorship. Like, Hey, this is how we're going to make that. P- even Peta and Gail are yeah. like making sure that Katniss gets through. Yeah. And I think that that definitely happens with Bessie. She has male instructors in Europe. She mm-hmm. has men in Chicago making sure she gets money. Yeah. She, she is able to do the things she can do. And I, I mean, unfortunately, Bessie and Katniss have the same thing. They're super cute. Yeah. <laughs> like it's getting them across the bridges that some women cannot cross. Yeah. Well, and I wrote down how important propaganda was in both of these stories. Mm. Like, cause propaganda is kind of used for like other people to like, see how it could be. And like, you talked about that Chicago newspaper that was like, yeah, I'll take this on because it could be profitable. You know what I'm saying? It's not like it's good for me. It's good for me too, you know? And it's like writing about her. And then I think about the rebellion, how they're like, you're not actually that important to us. Like we just need you as a face for this and how propaganda, like, yes, it can be helpful, but it can simultaneously and separately be harmful for people. Yes. Like I think that like, and, and again, like they both kind of toured to kind of, rally people and I was thinking about Katniss going to all the separate districts during I think it's like the third book and she's like seeing everyone and being like okay like let's rebel like let's rally together and then you have Bessie going around and inspiring black entrepreneurs like people are like I would never have done that if I had not seen Bessie Coleman speak which is again like these really positive outcomes that can come from propaganda it's like they do inspire people I I agree. And it's also so funny how they inspired people like Katniss in order to inspire people had to portray a marriage to PETA, Mm -hmm, whereas mm -hmm. Bessie had to pretend she was never married. Yeah. She had to pretend (laughs) to be a single woman in order to be able to do this daredevil stuff, which is so interesting because she had to pretend to be like not pretend, but like, you know, go into kind of a sham marriage just to get a little ahead when she did you know what I'm she saying? In the an apartment, she was like, "I need an apartment, so I have to be married." Like, yeah. I think it's so interesting how like women's association to marriage is a bargaining chip in all these weird ways that we see through this. It's like, you know, he's like, "No, we're getting married." Be- like Peter says that because he's like, "Maybe we won't get have to go to the Hunger Games, or maybe we'll get more money, or whatever." Because once you're an adult, you get pulled from it. Yeah, once you're an adult, but not in like the 75th one, though. Then right. you can be like uh, Mag, who's like fucking 95. Yeah, she was great with her little TikTok clock. Yeah, fucking what's her Magda from <laughs> Sex in the City. <laughs> we love her. Um, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's really interesting how, like, even though we're talking about a story from literally the early 1900s and a dystopian future set in like 2190 something, it's like marriage is still an economic preposition, proposition, preposition, proposition. Uh, thanks, and Peach. thanks, Amy March, because you can't tell me that it's not. <laughs> she was fighting. Everybody go back to Amy March. Um, you should. Um, I also, when you 
And this wasn't even a part of your story, but when you were like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm blowing through these stories. (laughs) I felt like that was such a powerful moment because I said things like, and then she did laundry for five years. And it's like, you don't realize how long and draining Mm -hmm. five years is. And to everybody out there who is in the middle of a side quest right now, like you're doing your job, but you're on the side doing something else. It's okay. You will make it through that side quest and it'll be fine. If you're blogging, if you're writing a book, if you're making videos, whatever the fuck you're doing, you're going to make it. I think so much about something that I heard Greta Gerwig say in an interview. Speaking of little women, she goes, Nobody loves writing. Everybody loves having written. <laughs> and I you think can't like it. You, it's like because like things like writing and just existing in the world. It's so exhausting and frustrating because you keep getting over these hurdles. But sometimes you get through it and then you have this moment like I imagine like Katniss when she goes home and she's like okay I'm safe and I imagine Bessie when she's in the air and she's like I fucking did it you know like these moments where they're like things are good at the moment and it's like yeah that's you like having written you're like the thing I was working towards is done I'm gonna do it again I'm gonna write another thing I'm gonna do another thing and it's gonna be shit for a while and that's okay because Everybody is working towards something. And just because you're not in the end result now doesn't mean you won't ever be. Mm. I agree. I I love it. This episode turned so beautiful. It did. I mean, can we even... I'm so inspired right now. Can we even think about the importance of bread? Like, I love that PETA is a baker. And I think when we get into PETA flashbacks, it's like he secretly smuggled Katniss bread and well, got he trouble burned for it, it on purpose and his so parents he could throw it out so to he her. could throw it out to her because her family was like literally starving Which, and like we didn't get into PETA too much right but like but it's what's happening but it's what's happening and, and it, the same thing is happening mm-hmm. with the Joneses giving yeah. Bessie bread and it yeah. makes me think so much of the scene in Aladdin where he has this bread and him and Apu like take Ugh. a bite and then they're like we're starving but we're not that starving there's literally a song and dance number about them getting this fucking bread and then he One just jump gives ahead away. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> and he just gives it away. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean a poo is the only realist in the movie. Yeah. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> but it, I just think like bread is such a taken for granted substance. And yeah. both of these stories had this touch point of like, but if I can't eat, yeah. Then what? Exactly. <sighs> exactly. Well, don't worry, friend, you're just in the you're in the in-between. <laughs> You'll get through it. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> and if you don't believe in yourself, I'll believe in you for you. <laughs> okay. We all believe in you. All right. Are you ready to toast? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I really felt inspired by Bessie to toast women who never give up. Mm. Because while I really do believe in cutting your losses, Mm -hmm. I think that's really excellent. Like if you start an endeavor and you realize it's not working, don't sink more time into it. Yeah. But if you know your endeavor is like something important. Yeah. I am just all in for that because it's excellent. And I think Bessie did it in the most beautiful way because she wasn't doing something impossible. Mm -hmm. She was doing something that she saw people of her race and gender do in other places. Mm -hmm. And she said, 
I'm going to bring this to America. There we go. Don't don't give up. Don't give up. Don't I give love up. Her. Cheers. Cheers to people who don't give up. Who are you toasting? I am going to toast the heroines who struggle. I think sometimes we want our female heroes to be perfect and always brave and strong. But I think it's important to show female heroes who also struggle with depression because when you are in the midst of a bout of anxiety or depression or other mental health issues, it might feel like you were the opposite of a hero, but sometimes just getting through the day makes you just as strong and as brave as Katniss Everdeen. So to all the folks out there who struggle with just getting through every day, I think that you are a true hero. So cheers to you. Beautiful. All right, Allie, now that we've gone through this, these great tales, what are you enjoying in pop culture right now? Okay. So last week on Netflix, did you see that the history of swear words got released? Yes, I did. Did you watch it? I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. So it's like six episodes, Mm -hmm. and I think they are as far. They go in decreasing severity. They start with fuck, and then they go, I think, shit, bitch, pussy, dick, damn. I think is the order. I was hoping they would end with the damn. Yeah. And... Nick Cage is the host. <laughs> a lunatic. A lunatic. I love him. But here's the best thing about him. He knows we all think he's a lunatic and he hits it hard on purpose. He is purposefully like making jokes about himself during the episodes and it is stellar. It's stellar. <laughs> If you want to hear more about Nick Cage from us, go listen to our <laughs> Madame LaLaurie episode. Listen, I was telling Jake about it while we were watching. I was like, and then he bought a murder house, and then he thought he was cursed, and then he bought a graveyard. I was like, and he took a pyramid. <laughs> and Jake Those was are like, all true. Jake was like, Ali, I'm trying to listen to the history of the word Shut pussy. Up. Can you stop? <laughs> and Sarah Silverman is like, pussy? Because they interview comedians. They do the thing. Mm. It's like Nick Offerman, you know. it's just very little of it is history but it's really good takes on swearing and then they have these two experts one of which is like a writer for webster's dictionary she's a word expert that's so cool and then the other person has their doctorate in the history of swear words but literally looks like a mouse (laughs) you would not know that she has ever cussed once in her life and it's so cute and then the woman who works for oxford dictionary Cha- in 2017 and says it on the bitch episode changed the dictionary definition to be offensive to women oh shit she oh, that's so cool changed the definition because she was like i'm reading this and it says a dog it says a slur it says this but it never says that this is an offensive derogatory term to women she changed the fucking definition of oh, the word my god i'm sure aoc was like yes bitch <laughs> Was anybody else really worried about AOC during this? Like, yes. So anyway, Forever and always. Yeah. Um, She's a national treasure and she must be protected. Did you see the meme that was like, how does AOC stay so skinny? Because she meets, she eats male egos for lunch. No! I thought you were going to mention the memes that were like here's like <laughs> it was like nicholas cage like smuggling the into declaration of independence during the capitol riots 
Um, anyway, producer and I watched this whole thing in two days. Oh, and it was, I mean, they're only like half an hour and there's yeah. only six episodes, but it was a blessing. Uh, it was a I blessing and a riot and don't watch it around your children. Perfect. Okay. What were you promoing? I'm going to promo something that I can't remember if I've already promoted before, but I don't care. I've had that happen. So it's okay. this is the dead authors podcast. You have absolutely promoted this. I'm just going to promo it again. People People don't ever listen don't this care. far. It doesn't matter. Okay, so so <laughs> I listened to the Virginia Wolf episode recently. <laughs> okay, and it is so fucking funny because it's I, if you haven't heard it, it's a show where Paul F. Tompkins plays H.G. Wells and he interviews authors who have died. Um, ben Schwartz at one point plays Roald Dahl, and it's so fucking funny because he like finds out at the end of the episode he's like, oh my gosh, he was anti-Semitic, and he goes. He's been like my hero and he's like playing him and it's so fucking funny. So I've just been listening to it um, recently because it's really good and it's funny and you actually do learn some things about some cool authors. Like I did not know that Virginia Woolf had like trysts with like female lovers and like mm. whatnot. And like, I like now I'm like, Oh my gosh, we like have to do her on the show eventually. You know, like I always knew she was important, but like now I'm like, Ooh, she's like, really interesting and she's she was like, kind of wild yeah. Like, but yeah and it's like comedians playing these people and it's all improv and it's really fun so i know i've done it before but i'll do it again go listen to the dead authors podcast it's only like 50 episodes i think because it was like a short-lived thing that was it's um, very fun it was a charity show for some kind of reading charity so yeah go listen to it it's really fun <laughs> It is. Um, so we love you. We love you. Find us everywhere. We're going to do our patron do. episode immediately after this. Yes. It'll be only for you. Yeah. So if you went in on it, join our patron. Come and find us. Uh, all the mediocre <laughs> people aren't going to be able yeah. to hear it. It's a secret. <laughs> and secrets are fun. For our most favorite people even though we love you all um <laughs> the people we love don't but wanna. we love more than you um, i'm such a people pleaser i'm like don't worry i like you too <laughs> uh but you can find us on instagram linkedin twitter youtube facebook and the intranet and gmail all of it all of the internet we're there we're here for you we're there for everyone but most of all we want you to never forget that well-behaved women <laughs> get their wisdom teeth removed before they start hurting. <sighs> I'm so afraid of wisdom teeth. It's not oh, even funny. Oh, it's really bad. Oh my god. I got all four removed <gasps> at the same time. Well, <laughs> it for, wasn't good. For Casey, he didn't have dental insurance, so we had to go downtown at three oh, o'clock yes, in the morning and wait in that line and wait in line. And then someone got into a fight because someone came up. They cut the line. They came up in an Uber right when the clinic opened at like 4.30 a.m. when all of us had been waiting in the cold and the dark for an hour and a half and cut in line. Yeah, not OK. And a fucking fight broke out. And I was like, can you just get his fucking teeth out of his head? It was horrible. And he was there all day. I went to miserable. I went to a generic dentist and they sold the teeth out of my head. Producer went to like <laughs> saw the teeth. <laughs> producer went to like a plastic surgeon and like felt fine the next day. Was I'm like, sure yeah. because they fucking put you under for like a teeth cleaning. He's like, I can crunch anything. And I was like, fuck you. Anyway, bye Anyways, everybody. So we love you and well behaved women rarely make a street. Goodbye. So long. <laughs>
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.